Heavenly Father, we come before you this day grateful that we have this day of all the days of the week to just rest in your presence, gather together as your people, to hear from your word and approach your table, all by your amazing grace. And I pray that as this word is brought forth, Lord, you would think your thoughts through our minds, Lord, that my lips would be yours among your people, and that you would set every single one of our hearts on fire with love for you. And bend our wills to yours. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Well, as Jerry read that text in First Peter, I'm sure you felt, well, that's appropriate for Lent. Talking about suffering and, and all that. Lent is a time for discipline, for confession, and for honesty before God, it, it, you know, I, when I was in Europe, I got made fun of because I took a shower every day. I'm an American. Of course. It's gross. I took two showers if I worked out. Um, it was just kind of a fun ribbing that me and my British friends had. You know, you guys like to stink. That's your problem. Um, <laughs> you know, but that's what Lent's about. Lent is not because God is mean, but because he wants us to know the joy of being cleansed, to be ready for all the good things that he has in store for us. So we take these six weeks, and we're walking through this passage especially to remind us that as our Lord suffered, we learn today, so will we in this Genesis 3 world. So, verse 1 of chapter 4 begins with, since therefore. I would remind you that the Bible never, ever gives you busy work like those teachers did. The Bible never tells you what to do, what comes after a therefore. And before the therefore, there's something to do with ultimate reality. God, the nature of God, the nature of the world, the nature of reality, the nature of Christ, the nature of sin. And so, therefore, when we have a therefore, you ask yourself, what's the therefore there for? <laughs> right? Well, that's where we've spent the last year, you know, since fall. And Peter has been telling us a very different story than our world tells us. Jesus was vindicated in death. He rose victorious in the spirit and now reigns eternally as the ascended son of Christ, ascended son of God. At God's right hand. And accordingly, Peter makes us aware that we cannot claim naivete. Jesus' suffering was not the unfortunate result of an itinerant uh, idealist. Instead, his suffering was a divine initiative. Persecution was the predetermined pathway for the Son of God. It's all throughout the scriptures. It's all throughout the gospels. Jesus embraced it. In Mark, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. When Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin on the night of his betrayal, never once did he defend himself, hoping to avoid the cross. In fact, when he did speak, he intentionally said what he knew would take him to the cross. So clearly, Jesus fully embraced his calling to suffer out of his desire to save us, and that's what we heard last week in verse 18 of chapter 3. 
Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Now at the opening phrase of our text, Peter again turns to Christ's suffering, but this time he has different intentions. He feels no need to further encourage us in the reality of God's love for us on the cross. He's already stated that, 18 to 22 of chapter 3. Rather, he writes about Christ's suffering in this particular text, and he calls us to embrace it as well. Chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves. Emulate Jesus. It's as if Peter has finally come to the place in the letter to these churches that are going through an awful time, and they are suffering just by being Christians. And there he rises up to unashamedly acclaim, proclaim to us, followers of Jesus, be prepared to embrace suffering. Get yourselves ready. And so the natural question is, well, how do we do that, Peter? Thanks very much. I appreciate that, buddy. But what do we do? Well, fortunately, this passage tells us how to do that. So I turn, encourage you to open up with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter 4, chapter 1. If you're visiting, you can find it in the back of the bulletin. Because what we see is, number one, three commitments that every believer must make. Two, there's a twofold cost we must count and three, we remind ourselves of the courage reminder of what awaits us in eternity. So, first, the three commitments that every believer must make. Number one, the first commitment we must make is to resolve to follow Christ. Peter writes, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. All right, we have to resolve to follow him. Notice to embrace our calling in Christ initially requires attention to our minds. We begin by thinking clearly. And for that, we need to develop the mental disposition of Jesus. Today, in the West at least, um, it is the church that suffers often from a naivete of mind. It is difficult for Christians to understand here in the West and embrace God's intention for suffering because we prefer a gospel of health, wealth, and happiness. We too readily think that material blessing is the entitled reward for believing the good news of Jesus. To put it directly, the west shore of Cleveland, the suburbs of Cleveland, every suburb and every comfortable place across our land, we expect a Jesus of comfort and ease and acceptance from those around us. But in actual fact, the life of Jesus Christ challenges all that. Jesus resolved to live as a stranger in the world. He expected hardship. And when we read, when we read his own Hebrew scriptures, they taught him that union with God culminates in mixed reviews. So in one sense, when Peter calls us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, he's saying, dearly beloved, grow up. Get the mind of Christ. Become a person of resolve. Be prepared. If you've been united with him by faith, you will identify him with him in suffering. So that first gospel commitment Peter calls us to embrace closes with a phrase that is a little confusing at 
first glance. He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, which, what, does that mean we don't sin anymore? You know, is that such a wooden interpretation? So what's Peter saying? He's simply affirming that those who suffer for the gospel do by their very willingness to suffer demonstrate that they're done with their old lifestyle. They're done with the old life. To put it as clearly as I can, everyone who suffers for Jesus Christ first resolves somewhere along the line to cease from their sin and to live for Christ. After all, the suffering they experience is a result of leaving off their sin. So Peter says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So number one, our first commitment is to follow Christ, a resolve on his term and not ours. Secondly, the second commitment we make is a resolve to live for the will of God. Verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The two commitments we make are spelled out by contrast. Number one, no longer for human passions. We're going to get back to that later as well. But for the will of God. Since the following verses, the highlight, the kinds of behavior Christians leave behind, let's first look at what we're to be about. Peter says we're to live for the will of God. What does he mean by that? Fortunately, we've seen that throughout Peter's letter. Chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Peter's meaning, this is what it means to live by the will of God. If the will of God is found by the way of contrast to human passions, then we can know for sure that we prepare our minds for suffering by giving ourselves wholly over to the pursuit of holiness, to live for him. God wants us to make that commitment to sanctification, being set apart, to putting on the new humanity that we have in Christ. That's how we embrace our calling. Another passage in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We do the will of God when we keep our conduct honorable by doing good deeds. This, of course, will always require us to be countercultural, my friends. We always swim upstream against the current today's morality. We are to be known for doing good, and as we have seen in this letter, the supreme mark of goodness is submission to difficult, ungodly people of authority, and so forth. So first, we resolve to follow Jesus. Secondly, we live for the will of God. And three, we leave human passions behind is the third commitment. We do these three resolutions. We resolve to leave human passions behind. Verse 3, the time that is past suffices. 
Do you hear what he's saying here? The time that is past is enough. It's as Peter is telling the church, enough, friends. Put your sin in the rearview mirror. And then he goes on to list the kind of things that Christians are to put away. Look at how the verse finishes. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That's a lot. You know, uh, I was down with my mom this week, as you all well know. And my son got to hear all my childhood stories from my 95-year-old mother. When I was in third grade, we were studying Rome, and I walked out with my toga. You know, I was walking a mile to school in a Roman toga in May with my purple. I was a a Roman senator. And as I walked out the house, I turned to my mother, and I said, Oh, Mom, this is going to be a great day. And she said, Really? Why is that? She goes, We're going to have a Roman orgy. (laughs) She goes, Really? What happens at this Roman orgy? We get all the pizza you can eat. (laughs) Ricky Dvorak taught me all the dirty words I ever learned, and I had no idea what that word meant until I found out later. Oh. No, this is what was going on in the ancient world, my friends, and we participate in some of these. We have. And, And Peter is saying, enough. Be done. It's bondage. Don't you see? Life as an ongoing fraternity party is a major problem in the suburban church today. One of our old members died, and I had one of our older members come to my house and say, they threw great cocktail parties. I said, what else did they do? What did they do in the church? I don't know what they did in the church, but they threw great parties. That was our reputation in this community. Talk to Bob. He knows. Friends, if we're not there in person, we're all too often present through what we watch on TV, on the Internet. For men, sensuality is especially prevalent. Sex is the elephant in the middle of the room. Peter says, in this matter, it is time to clean house. Until we wake up, tackle this area head on, out in the open, we'll only continue debilitating a generation and we'll keep them from being grounded in their faith, unable to fly unencumbered in the presence of the Lord. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard tells a parable of the disastrous effects of not putting to death the desires of the flesh. He told the story of one springtime a duck was flying with his family of geese all the way across Europe, flying northward. And during the flight, he was flying over a barnyard where there were tame ducks. So he flew down because he was getting hungry to eat some of their corn. He stayed for an hour, then for a day. week passed. Before he knew it, a month had gone by. This is good food. So he stayed all summer long. And then one autumn day, the same wild ducks came flying southward again. They passed overhead, and the duck heard their cries. He was filled with a strange thrill. 
a strange joy. So he desired to fly with them once again. So with a great flapping of his wings, he rose in the air to rejoin his own comrades in the flight. But he couldn't do it. He found that his good fare had made him so soft and heavy that he could no longer fly with them. He could fly no higher than the eaves of the barn. So he dropped back down again to the barnyard and said to himself, Oh, well, at least I'm safe. Food's good. And every spring and every autumn, the ducks flew overhead. His eyes would gleam for a moment, and he'd begin flapping his wings. But the day finally came when the wild ducks flew overhead, uttering their cries, but he paid them no attention because he didn't hear them at all. Let that not be us. It's an apt parable for the church in our time. As Christians, there are too many who profess to be Christians who have feasted way too long at the buffet that the world has to offer. We forget that we are still far from home. We haven't arrived at our destination yet. And sadly, many go unfazed by the good news of Jesus because they are feeding on the husks of this world and demonstrate that we think too little of the delight that waits for us in his presence. And Peter says, enough. We sing about it. Rise up, O men of God. Rise up, O men of God. Have done with lesser things. Right? Be done. C.S. Lewis talked about his struggle with this, because we all struggle with it. He said, indeed, the only way in which I can make real to myself what theology teaches about the heinousness of my sin is to remember that every sin is the distortion of an energy breathed into us, an energy which, if not thus distorted, would have blossomed into them one of those holy acts whereof God did it and I did it are really both true descriptions. We poison the wine as he decants it into us. Murder a melody, he would play with us as the instrument. We caricature the self-portrait he would paint. Hence, all sin, whatever else it is, is sacrilege. In other words, it's defaming, reducing the sacred that you are in Christ. God has plans for your body, and they're plans for purity and for good. Don't cheapen life. Don't settle for a distorted Christianity. Don't poison the wine that God pours into you. Be done with it. With sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Make those three gospel commitments and tell the world you're ready to embrace a freedom in Christ, which is perfect freedom. Resolve to follow Christ, live for the will of God, and leave human passions behind. And as we do, secondly, count the twofold cost. Because he doesn't stop there, verse 4. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You know, first, your friends and family will be surprised. You'll be misunderstood. They have no categories for your newfound faith. Why you no longer grab at what you used to grab at to grab all the gusto of life. And so what they will say to you is, come on, live a little. What happened to you? 
Loosen up. Malcolm Muggeridge says it well when he says, anyone who suggests that the pursuit of happiness, that disastrous phrase written almost by chance into the Declaration of Independence, and usually signifying in practice the pursuit of pleasure as expressed in the contemporary cult of eroticism, runs directly contrary to the Christian, Christian way of life as conveyed in the New Testament, is sure to be condemned as a life-hater. Over time, they'll be, first they'll be surprised, but secondly, the other cost is understand they will malign you. Because surprise evokes misunderstanding, misunderstanding evokes a sense of being judged. And the world feels that it has been judged by the way you live your life. Those who are of it will condemn you as a life hater. Take a look again at this progression of behavior embedded. Their surprise gives way to malign. And so he says, with respect to this, they're surprised. Do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, shares a story of President Ford and Billy Graham playing golf with two PGA professionals. After they played their 18 holes, it came off. One of the other PGA professionals came up to the guy who was riding in the same cart with Billy Graham, said, hey, how is it like riding with Billy? And the guy was just ticked. He goes, I don't need Billy Graham shoving religion down my throat. And he just huffed off to the golf range and kept hitting balls. The other PGA professional let him calm down. You know, he says, that bad, huh? He goes, so what did he say to you? He goes, oh, he didn't talk religion at all. I just had a bad round. <laughs> Astonishing, isn't it? Billy Graham is so identified with religion, so associated with the things of God, that his very presence is enough to smother the wicked man who flees when the man to others doesn't even pursue him. See, Luther was right. Luther said, the pagan does tremble at the rustling of a leaf. He feels the hound of heaven bringing down his neck. He, he feels crowded by holiness, even if it is only made present by an imperfect, partially sanctified human vessel. They'll be surprised, and they will malign you. Count the twofold cost. It's going to happen. Don't be surprised. Third and final, we need to recognize that there'll be one final accounting, verses 5 and 6. Because Peter closes our text with a reminder of the final judgment. It's, a, it's meant as an encouragement to us, his readers. It appears that he's especially thinking of judgment that awaits those unbelievers who choose to malign us. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In one sense, you and I do not need to judge the world. It already stands condemned. We entrust ourselves to God, and we wait for Jesus to set all things straight. And the closing verse in our text gets a little tricky to get hold of at first glance. It's especially hard to see how it functions as an encouraging word. Um, for those who await final judgment. Verse 6, For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. 
So what we need to remember is that the early church had many questions about their Christian friends who had just come to faith in Christ, and they had died. They were wondering what happened to those believers after death. There was legitimate concern for those who had already undergone the penalty of death, and Peter wants to reassure his readers here with the news that although believers are judged in the flesh the way people are, they need not worry about their future with God. He says they will live in the Spirit the way God lives in the Spirit. We have nothing to fear in Christ. We have nothing to fear in embracing suffering in this life because he's got us. Peter wants us to grasp this as part of our calling. And to do so, we make three gospel commitments. One, resolve to follow Christ, live for the will of God, and leave the ways of the world behind. Two, we're going to have two great costs. They're going to they're gonna be surprised at us. And then they will inevitably malign us and slander us. But we can always be reassured that there will be a final accounting for everyone. As those who are in Christ, we shall live on in the Spirit. And one day, that Spirit will be reunited with a new body. Perfect. On the new earth. For eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have given us this call. As, as difficult as it is, we remember it's because of the love that you have for us in your Lord and your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And therefore, because of what he's done, therefore, we can embrace our call to suffer. May we receive it. We know that everything we bear for you in this life will be nothing in comparison with the glory we will share with you in your presence. Therefore, Lord, we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, make us a person of resolve, people of resolve, that we would resolve to follow you, Lord Jesus, wherever you call us. We would live for your will in every aspect of our lives, and we would leave the ways of the world behind us. We would count the cost, not be surprised when they're surprised, not be surprised when they malign us and slander us. And Lord, that we would recognize that you're in control, you're sovereign, you number our days, and there will be a final accounting for every one of us. But because we're in Christ, we can celebrate now and into eternity that we are perfectly righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, because we trust in your amazing grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.